Welcome to Beauty is Eternal, the art of being your best self for women. My name is Caitlin and I'm your host. Today's episode is called Ancient Egyptian Queen Nefertiti with Dr. Joyce Tildesley. Beauty, fame, power, and a death shrouded in mystery. While the last dynasty of ancient Egypt may have died out over 2,000 years ago, the legacy and the mystery of the 3,000-year period live on in the hearts and imaginations of those enchanted by it, as well as in the fascinating pyramids, beguiling sphinx, and the immortalized bust of Queen Nefertiti. No one knows where she came from or when and how she died, but everyone knows her bust. The basic anatomy and physiology of human beings has changed quite little since Queen Nefertiti's life. They say that history repeats itself. So if modern humans are physically similar to those in ancient Egypt, I kind of think it makes sense to see what we can learn from them. Queen Nefertiti lived from roughly 1370 to 1335 BC. She was the wife of the pharaoh Amenhotep IV during one of the wealthiest periods of ancient Egypt where they moved the capital from Thebes to Amarna. Although enemies later tried to erase her and her husband from history, ironically, she instead became one of the most famous women to emerge from ancient Egypt. Nefertiti's bust is currently in the Neues Museum of Berlin. Talk about eternal beauty! Joyce Tildesley is a British archaeologist and Egyptologist, academic, and the author of over 20 books about ancient Egypt, including the female pharaohs Hatshepsut, Cleopatra, and Queen Nefertiti. Joyce teaches at the University of Manchester, specializing in Egyptian historiography and the role of women in ancient Egypt. She teaches online degrees in Egyptology, so if you are listening, you can actually study under her. She is the author of the books Nefertiti, Egypt's Sun Queen, and her more recent book, Nefertiti's Face, which focuses on the Berlin bust of Nefertiti. Joyce was born in Bolton, Lancashire, which fortunately had a great Egyptology collection, which sparked her interest in the subject at a young age. She went to London as a student in 1972 to see the treasures of Tutankhamun exhibition at the British Museum. And although in the end she did not see it, it rekindled her spark of interest in Egyptology. Joyce studied archaeology of the Eastern Mediterranean at Liverpool University before getting her doctorate in prehistoric archaeology at Oxford University, focusing on hand axes used by the Neanderthals. She holds an honorary doctorate from the University of Bolton and is a research associate of the Manchester Museum. Prior to joining the University of Manchester, she taught prehistory and Egyptology at Liverpool University. We are talking to Joyce today 
to unearth and unbury information about Egypt's elusive queen from the mouth of one of the world's leading experts on her. You can learn more about that on her website, joycetilsdeli.co.uk. Now to the interview. Thank you for being my guest today, Joyce. It's a delight to meet you. Oh, no, thank you for inviting me. Well, you're the author of the best book about Nefertiti in the world, so (laughs) the honor is mine. Thank you. (laughs) My first question to you is, what do you think it is about ancient Egypt that is so fascinating for people even today? That is such a good question. And it's such a difficult question to answer because I'm asking myself the same question for many, many years. I think that it's probably because looking at ancient Egypt, it's a mixture of a life that seems both very familiar. We can recognize people's lives and the fact that they're born and they, they live a life in a, in a house and they have a tomb and so and they die. But at the same time, it's very exotic. It's different to how we in the West live our lives today. And there's a lot of beauty involved in it. If we look at the tombs, they're beautifully decorated. If we look at the temples, they're beautifully decorated and so on. And I think this this attracts us to the society. We have to be very careful, though, because although we may be attracted by the beauty of ancient Egypt, when we start to study it, we realise that it's a normal civilization like any other. And the people are people like us today. So we shouldn't imagine that everybody in the past led a perfect life. It wasn't like that. There was illness and disease and so on. But we don't immediately see that. So that we're attracted to it. And then as we study it, we start to understand it more. But by that time, we're hooked into studying ancient Egypt and we love the society. So we, we still carry on with it. That's the best I can answer that, because it's a question that everybody asks. So many people are fascinated by ancient Egypt. <laughs> Well, you make such a good point. It's easy to glamorize it because it doesn't exist anymore. And we don't see the day to day records where a woman lost nine of 10 children or nine of 14 in childbirth. Exactly. Exactly. We just see people standing in fields looking happy, wearing beautiful white clothes and jewels and so on. And we forget that a large percentage of the population were very poor and were peasants and weren't mummified and didn't have tombs and so on. They just had graves and we forget this. Um, And we imagine ourselves living in the past, but living the life in a palace rather than living the life of a peasant, I think. (laughs) Well, only one person got to be Queen Nefertiti. Yes. Only one out of millions. So (laughs) can you talk a little bit about Nefertiti? Who was she and What in particular about her makes her so fascinating for you? You've written two books on her now. Yes, she was the wife of a king. She was the wife of a king who started out being called Amenhotep IV and who changed his name to Akhenaten because he was an unusual king. He dedicated his life really to worshipping one god. He built a new city. So he was very different to all all the other kings of ancient Egypt. And Nefertiti was consistently shown by his side. Having said that, we don't know a great deal about her. We see her image a lot and we recognise her because she wore a crown that no other queen of Egypt had worn. And it's a sort of tall crown, blue or green coloured, with a flat top to it. When we see this crown, we know that we're looking at Nefertiti. She's not always named in, in art and inscriptions and sculpture, but we know it's her when she wears this crown. 
So we can see that she's with her husband Akhenaten a lot. We know that she had at least six daughters. We don't know if she had any sons. She might have done because the ancient Egyptian royal family didn't always put sons into their art. So the fact that we don't see images or have the name of a son mentioned doesn't mean that she didn't have sons. It just means that they chose not to tell us about them. So she may have been the mother of Tutankhamun. We don't know. She was obviously a very, very important woman. Any queen of Egypt was a very, very important woman. Some people have argued that she might have actually ruled Egypt by herself after her husband died. I don't think she did, but that's some people do. There's a lot of discussion about what happened at the end of the reign of Akhenaten and what happened to Nefertiti. But we do know that politically she was important and she had also an important religious role to play within the royal family and that people actually worshipped the gods through Nefertiti. She was sort of stood between people and the gods or the sun god, if you like. So she's a really important character. She's the most famous because we have a bust of her in Berlin Museum, which you'll know about. And, and this is recognised by people throughout the world. Even people who don't know about Nefertiti recognise this bust. And because it is a very beautiful bust, we think we know maybe more about her than we do. We imagine, for example, that she was a very beautiful woman because her bust is very beautiful. This may not be true mm -hmm. um, because Egyptian art is not portraiture. But because we have this bust, we think that we, we know a lot about her. But in fact, we don't. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting when you put it like that, because we do have this bust where she's so divinely beautiful. But maybe the sculptor had some freedom and she didn't really look like that in real life. Yeah, well, we don't know. yeah. And the thing about Egyptian art, royal art, is that it's not created just to look like the person. It's created for an official purpose. And people are depicted to show this role. So, for example, a king will be depicted wearing a crown and a false beard and a kilt. Even if normally in every day he didn't dress like that, this is how he'll be shown, because this is the official image of a king. And it was important that the official image of a king was shown so that everybody would recognise it as the king. And so that maybe the king's spirit after death might even have to live on in that statue. It was so important. So you wanted an image that represented what the king did and what the king symbolised. It didn't have to look like the king. What made it the king was the fact the name was on it or that it wore a crown and a beard. And it's the same with Nefertiti. All her images look the same, but that's because they're wearing the same crown and probably because they're made from the same workshop. It doesn't necessarily mean that it looked like her. It looks like what she wanted people to to look at her and think she looked like, but it might not necessarily be her. It, it's, mm -hmm. it's interesting. We, so we can't assume that we know what she looked like. That's such a good point. And from reading your book, I learned we have a lot of surviving depictions of Nefertiti and Akhenaten, in particular because the capital for them what we call Amarna was not in the same place as previous capitals and a lot of images were left there. Can exactly. you talk a little about that? that? That's a really good question and this is so important because we have a lot of images of Nefertiti it has been suggested that she was more important than any other queen because we have all these images mm. but in fact we have to remember 
that she lived in a city that was only occupied for 25 years and then was abandoned. So nobody built on top of it. So we can't really compare images of Nefertiti at the site of Amarna to images of other queens at, at maybe Thebes, because Thebes, the, the traditional capital, was built over and built over and the old art was taken down and new art was put up. At Amarna, everything stayed in place. So there were a lot of images of Nefertiti. There were also a lot of images of Nefertiti because Akhenaten got rid of most of the old gods of Egypt. He just wanted to worship one good god, the sun god. So in situations where in the past they would have had images of gods and statues of gods, he gave statues of the royal family. It's like the royal family stepped in to act as gods, if you like. So again, more images of Nefertiti than we would normally have. And the question for us as archaeologists, archaeology detectives, is to try and work out whether it's she's so prominent, there's so much of her in the art because she's unusually important, or whether it's just a his, it's a historical accident that she's been preserved more. I see what you mean. So potentially many queens could have been as important as she was, but we lost all of their images because in Thebes it was simply destroyed and defaced, forgotten. Yes, exactly. I mean, we don't know, but this is why I love Egyptology, because there are so many questions that we don't have answered that we can think about. It, it makes it really exciting for us to study. What do we, I know there's so much we don't know and so much you kind of have to, it's like having a puzzle and maybe you have, I don't know, 13 pieces out of 45 or something and you're trying to put it together. Yes. But what do we concretely know about Nefertiti? Because there are a few facts we can use for sure that would help um, to give a little more basis of an understanding of her. Okay, well, we know about her daughters, that she had six living daughters. She may have had more daughters who died. She may have had sons. We know who her husband was, so we know her place in the royal family. We don't know who her parents were. And some people believe that she was a foreign princess who came to Egypt. But that would have been very, very unlikely. It seems much more likely that she was Egyptian born lady who married into the royal family, who was maybe related to the royal family. So not the daughter of a king, but maybe the cousin of the king, for example. That, that's a strong possibility. We can see her in art accompanying her husband. We can see that she does some political roles in the art. So, for example, we can see that on one scene we have of her actually smiting or attacking the enemies of Egypt. <laughs> so she's quite a powerful lady, but the enemies that she's attacking are female enemies. So we can see that she, she yes, she, she's doing a female role alongside the king's role. And then she, she kind of disappears towards the end of her husband's reign. She vanishes. And people have had felt traditionally that she couldn't just vanish, that she was so important that if she vanished, there must be a reason for it, that she hadn't just died. And maybe that she'd gone on to do something else. But fairly recently, we now have evidence from a piece of graffito in a quarry near to Amarna that she was actually still the king's great wife almost to the end of his reign because Akhenaten reigned for 17 years and in year 16 she was still the king's great wife. So I think less we these days we have less of a need to to find something for her to go on and do after his death. We can just assume that she stayed the king's great wife and then she retired to the harem and died but we've already got in our heads planted the idea that she did something special 
So it's hard for us to break away from that idea and think, well, maybe she just retired to the harem. We're thinking, well, maybe she ruled Egypt or maybe she did this or that. We get a lot of speculation towards the end of her life. <laughs> it's like nobody knows where she came from and nobody knows where she went. We yes. just yes. have this piece in the middle of her life. Yes, yes. It's, it's just a snapshot of she appears and she disappears again. I mean, her name is interesting because it means a beautiful woman has come. And people have used this to suggest that she had a foreign name and that she arrived at the court to marry the king and her name was changed from a foreign name that maybe couldn't be pronounced into an Egyptian name. But it's not that unusual a name. Um, there's no reason to think that she wasn't Egyptian. And in fact, the beautiful one is probably the goddess Hathor. It's probably her name is a reference to the goddess Hathor rather than actually suggesting that she herself has arrived in Egypt. So even that's interesting. Even her name is a, is a source of a lot of speculation and discussion. There's just so much mystery there. <laughs> One of the things from your book that I noticed was that she was not always depicted as a great beauty. She was in the relic in the Neues Museum in Berlin, but there was a period of time when she was depicted as, you know, a fairly plump woman or she, she sort of mirrors her husband. She looks a lot like yeah. her, um, which is not necessarily a good look for her. But this shows, I think, how the art is not portraiture. It's not what she looked mm -hmm. like. It's what tradition is. And maybe the sculpture workshop that they're using at that time, that is how they depict the royal family. And then they move to Amarna mm -hmm. and a different sculptor is working on their images. So this is how they look now. We imagine that the sculptor's workshop would have a copy of a, a bust or a head of Nefertiti and a copy of a bust of, of Akhenaten and that everything produced from that workshop would copy this, this one model. So maybe that is what we have in Berlin, that this is the sculptor's model for Nefertiti. So every Nefertiti that came out of the, the same sculptor's workshop would look the same. It wouldn't necessarily look like her, but it would look like the model. And the same with Akhenaten. And maybe if she'd lived for longer and, and she'd moved away from Amarna and they had another sculptor again in a different place, maybe she would look different again. And we have a bit the same things um, in Britain that our queens have the queen on them. And every now and again, the, on stamps as well, and every now and again, the image of the queen changes to, to update. Mm -hmm. and I think it might be the same system there. So it's not surprising that her images look the same at different periods or that they change either. It, it's not what she looked like, it's what they wanted to represent her as. Mm, that makes a lot of sense, because it wasn't meant to be in ancient Egypt or a one-for-one -one model of exactly how someone looked. It was what they represented, exactly. and she represented the other half of Akhenaten. Exactly, yes, yes. Yeah, so it must have been strange for her because she maybe never really knew what she looked like. Because, if, I mean, we're used to seeing ourselves. I can see you now while I'm talking to you. But, but she would have only been able to see herself either in water or in a polished metal mirror, which is not brilliant. It's, it's OK, but it's not brilliant. So maybe looking like you look like is, is less important to them than looking how you would like to be remembered is, is important. Whereas we know what we look like. So we know if a portrait doesn't look like us, it, it, we would find that strange, I think, but they wouldn't. I never thought of it like that. If you can't see yourself very often, 
then you actually are not even aware of what you what you no. look like most of the time. No, it's weird, isn't it? <laughs> and when you do see yourself in a mirror, it, it's very strange. The Egyptians thought the mirrors were a way of connecting with the gods or with spirits or with another world because it's so strange to be able to see reflection. <laughs> um, so that mirror is almost a sacred object and they're not very big. They're quite small, so you wouldn't see the whole body. You would see your head, maybe. It is strange, very strange, because we're so used to seeing ourselves and taking photographs. It's very true. What kind of makeup would Nefertiti have had access to at this time? I'm asking in particular because if you look at pictures and images of queens in ancient Egypt, they often appear to be wearing makeup. Of course, it could have just been, you know, painted on them. <laughs> No, no, I think they did. And, and kings as well. Makeup wasn't just for women, it's for men as well. We know that they had oils that they put on their skin. They didn't have soap, so the oils would also have a cleansing function. We know that they were very interested in eye makeup, particularly eyeliner and to go around the eyes, coal to go around the eyes, which they would make from mineral pigments. That might have been perceived as having a health benefit as well that maybe having lines drawn around your eyes would protect the eyes from the glare of the sun. Mm. Because we think that eye infections would have been quite common in ancient Egypt. It's very dry and very dusty um, country. It looks from the, the Berlin bust, she's got quite dark lips as well. Whether she's wearing some sort of lipstick or, or, or lip balm, difficult for us to tell. There's just very, very rare images of women doing this, but we don't have any finds of anything to go mm. on the lips. Whereas we do have finds of cosmetics for the eyes. So, yes, she would have been quite a heavy, dramatic <laughs> makeup, I think. If you think of Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah, you think about that. <laughs> yes, not quite like that, I think. What about, for instance, wigs? So you mentioned many times she had different wigs, different headpieces for different occasions. Did she have normal hair? What? <laughs> What was up with that? <laughs> we don't know. We we say that what would happen is that they would cut the hair very short or even shave it. And we know that ladies are buried with razors. They they have cos when they're buried in the tombs, they will have cosmetic boxes, and these will include razors, which might have been for shaving the arms and the legs, but might also be for shaving the head. Ah. And then the idea is that you have a heavy wig on. And there are all sorts of different wig styles. Um, some are long and curly, some are quite short and quite masculine, like a bobbed, a bobbed appearance. Mm -hmm. At Amana, they wear a short wig quite often. And it seems that they change them with fashion and from different occasions. We don't, we have some wigs surviving, but not, not very many. Mm -hmm. uh, but they must have been really, I think, important economic activity wig making that we know very little about. Of course, I don't know whether everybody shaved their hair because it's difficult to tell because we have this formal art and they presented showing them as, as they would like to be seen. But certainly Nefertiti, in many of her images, seems to have no hair at all. The Berlin bust has no hair. So has she got the hair tucked up inside her crown or has she shaved her head completely for that style of crown? We don't know. It, it would be very, very interesting to know. It would be super interesting to know what she did with her hair. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, the, it's always suggested that they do this because it would be very hot in Egypt. And also, if you had head lice, 
it's an easier way to get rid of them is to shave the hair, which is fair enough. But then if you put a very heavy wig on top of your bald head, that's not making it cooler. No, no, that's even hotter. So I don't know. <laughs> but it's interesting to think about what lessons do you think that she learned in her life that would be relevant for a woman today? I think that's an interesting question. I think that she she learned that women could be important in society, that they could either help somebody else to rule or do things by themselves. She didn't stay in the background. She came forward and helped her husband. We can see her physically handing things to him. If he's rewarding his followers, he, she gives things to him and he takes them. She drives in a chariot with him. So she's an active person. She doesn't stay in the background in any way. And they seem to have a true partnership. Now, he is always more important. He's the king. You would mm -hmm. expect that. But she's not she's not staying in the background. She is, she's stepping forward and mm -hmm. helping him. And this is very important. We see this with a lot of Egypt's queens. They are active people. And when the king dies, if the, the king dies and the next king is too young to come to the throne, the queen will help the young prince to, to rule until he's old enough to become the proper king. So being the queen of Egypt is it's a good role model for us to follow in that they are active people and they're expected to do something. They don't they're not just pretty or they don't just produce <laughs> children. They actually have power in their own right as well. Well, in Nefertiti's case, like you say, she was representing the female goddess, the female yes. divinity. Yes, yes. We think that because Akhenaten really only wanted to worship one god, the sun, there was something lacking. There was no, there was no female or male divinity because the sun is just like a ball in the sky. So he uses Nefertiti and himself to replace the male and female goddesses. So she, yes, you're quite right. She actually replaces the, the female goddesses and becomes in life something that someone that the people can relate to and, and can worship the sun through. Yes, it must have been very, very interesting for her, I think. <laughs> well, she, it makes it seem like she was like, you know, the Virgin Mary and the Venus combined in some way. She yes. is everything. Yes, and presumably she believed this. Presumably she wasn't just filling a role. She actually believed this, that when the king was crowned, maybe she was crowned at the same time, and that was a, a change in her role. She was no longer just a woman. She actually had this role to, to perform for Egypt. We, we don't know anything about the coronation ceremony for women at all, which is very interesting. I hope we discover more things in the coming years. What would it have been like for her? So her husband had a harem. It was normal in yeah. ancient Egypt for the king, the pharaoh, to have a harem. Yet it seems like they had a very loving relationship and she was very important to him. Yes. Would, do you imagine it would have been so common for her that it would not have been a problem for her? Because it was. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly what's what's expected. The king has a harem. He has many wives she would expect this and she would probably think nothing of it. She is way more important than the other wives though because she is the queen consort. So she is the queen who will appear in all the official art and it should be her children who will who will inherit the throne and that sets her apart from the other queens. She has a special crown which sets her apart from the others. But yes, she has these sister wives. I don't think that she would be so used to this system. To us, it's very strange. But I think to her, it would have been such a, a normal thing. Well, she might have been 
confused by our system. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. And in some ways, it might well have protected the queens because queens tend to be quite long lived and they do have a lot of pregnancies. Nefertiti had at least six, but she might have had 14, 15, 16 if her husband hadn't had a harem as well. So in some ways, it might actually Mm -hmm. be protective for Mm -hmm. her to have these sister wives as well. I don't know. I'm just guessing. But it might not be a bad thing either from her point of view. Do you think that there would have been a lot of pressure on her to produce a male heir or the fact? So we don't know if she had any sons, because as you said, they wouldn't have been included in royal portraits. We know she had six daughters. If she didn't have any sons, do you think that she would have felt a pressure to produce one? Well, less pressure than a king and queen would in, in Europe because they have this harem. So mm-hmm. there are other possibilities. And it, it's mm-hmm. also possible to adopt into the royal family. Mm-hmm. So that, that takes a lot of the pressure off, I think. It's not like she's going to get beheaded by Henry. No. Because she doesn't. <laughs> There's no need for that. The king can just take another. He's got other wives. He's got other yeah. children. Yeah. I mean, if Henry, if Henry had had many wives at the same time, it would have been right a lot easier. Have their heads. Yes, because they would they would all be legitimate. All yeah. of them would be be in line for the throne. It's not a case of one being more legitimate than the others. The mm-hmm. expectation would be that the children of the queen consort would inherit, but they don't have to. It could be somebody else, and that's absolutely fine. Mm. That makes a lot of sense, and it definitely seems to be a very, a very well thought out system, yes. in the sense that it's it's not like the king and queen if they don't have a child, it's not like the end of the world. It's like they find different solutions and they're flexible. It is. It, it, you're 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 absolutely right. It, it is a really well thought out system. We don't get we don't seem to have any crisis. If there isn't a prince, we take one from the harem, or we even adopt one into the royal family. What matters is that that person is crowned king. And once they've been crowned king, then they are the king. And that's what matters. And it's not and it does take like... a huge amount of pressure off everybody, I think. It, it is well thought out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they would think our system was needlessly difficult. Because if the <laughs> king doesn't have an heir with the queen, you've got to get a new queen. It's... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true, it's true. I know it's impossible to say. But let's say someone is listening and they're kind of intrigued and they're like, but where did she come from and where did she go? What do you think that happened to Nefertiti? What do you think the likeliest possibilities are? Okay, I think that what happened to Nefertiti was that she stayed as the king's great wife, but as she got older, maybe her role changed. Maybe she was less concerned with being worshipped as maybe a symbol of fertility. And maybe almost went on to be a wise woman, um, a more respected woman. We see the same thing happening with her mother-in-law, Queen T, who is the mother of Akhenaten. She also, she lives longer than her husband, but she becomes recognised as a very wise woman. I think Nefertiti would go the same way. But I really think that after her husband died, she just retired to the royal harem and that her daughters stepped forward We know that after the death of Akhenaten, there is a period of maybe three or four years where we're not quite sure what's happening before Tutankhamun is established on the throne. But we do know that there's evidence for an important, powerful royal woman around at this time, because we have texts that say this, but unfortunately they don't name the woman. (laughs) Some people think it's Nefertiti, but I don't, because Nefertiti was not born royal. 
And I think that although she had a lot of power when her husband was alive, when he died, she would, to a certain extent, lose that power. And But her daughters mm-hmm. were born royal, so they're there to step forward, and they would be able to inherit the throne if necessary. It doesn't have to be a man. I should have mentioned that before, actually. It doesn't have to be a man. It's, it's usual for it to be a man, and it's probably considered better. But if necessary, a woman can inherit the throne as well. But what doesn't happen is that a queen who's married into the royal family inherits the throne. That never happens. Uh, Okay. Yeah. I think we place too much emphasis on her and forget about her daughters. And what we should be doing is regarding her as a mother of really important daughters. So I think at least two of them went on to be queens of Egypt. And I think she either guided them in their reigns or she died. I don't really believe that she's buried in Tutankhamun's tomb, which some people believe. Where do you think she's buried? I think she was probably buried at Amarna in the first place, but I think she moved around a bit because the royal family were buried at Amarna up to the point where Tutankhamun decided that Amarna was not going to be the capital city anymore. Mm. And he moved everything back to Thebes and Memphis. And when he did this, he emptied the Amarna royal tombs and he took the bodies to Thebes and he put them all into a workshop tomb and he sort of stripped them of their valuables and and wrapped them up again and then he put them in different places in the Valley of the Kings. So I think that probably she was taken from Amarna to Thebes. She She was possibly in a workshop tomb for a time and then goodness knows where she ended up. It's a real mystery. I don't think we found her body. There have been suggestions that we found her body. Various people suggested that various mummies might be her. I don't think we found her yet. But there are an awful lot of queens of Egypt who are missing. We have mm-hmm. a lot of kings' bodies. But if you think about it, each king had about maybe 100 wives. So we have a lot of women huh? missing. There should be a lot more royal women than we than we have, and we don't have them. So, you know, I do really sometimes when I'm dreaming... <laughs> think that you know maybe there's another valley somewhere that's got more royal women in it we don't have the harem maybe if she died in the harem she was buried in the harem cemetery but we don't know where that would be either it's another it's another possibility there's still a lot of of, of egyptians out there that we haven't located and in some ways i hope that we don't you know because i think if she's resting in peace it would be a shame and it would be fascinating and yet a shame to disturb her if she had died when her husband was still alive, then we probably would have her grave because he would have made sure she was buried in the best, or we at least would have yeah. known where it was. Yeah, and he did have a tomb ready for her. And he did say he was going to bury her there. He told us this, that I will bury the queen here. So we know where he would have put her. Mm-hmm. But the trouble is, as soon as Tutankhamun decided to move the city back to, to Thebes and to Memphis, he had to, he couldn't leave the royal bodies buried in the royal tombs because they would have been robbed straight away. Mm-hmm. So it might be that she went in there and, and, and was taken out again. Or if she was still alive, then obviously she wouldn't have been buried in there. <laughs> so it, it makes it more complicated because they, they move the bodies. They <laughs> have them bo- buried and then, and then keep them there. It's much more difficult for us to understand what was happening. It's amazing on its own that she actually survived six childbirths. Yes, yes, yes. Child mortality, also the mortality of the mother, was pretty it was pretty dangerous to have children back then. Yes, absolutely. And no real medical understanding and no pain relief either. It really, yes, it was, it was a tough life. Yeah, she's, she's pretty strong or 
strong and lucky to survive six childbirths, so wouldn't surprise me if she lived on after that. She's a tough lady. Let's say that you could discover one secret about Nefertiti. You could learn anything you've been dying to know. What would the one thing you most want to know be? I think I'd like to know if she was Tutankhamun's mother. Mm, mm. Because that would be very interesting. In the book, you theorize that there's another woman, Kaya, or Kia. Kia, or either, either, either is good. From the harem, who may be his mother? Yes, we don't know. Um, and I, sli- I slightly changed my mind. I, I keep changing my mind on this because every time I look at the evidence, I think of new things. And that's what's brilliant about Egyptology. It changes all the time. If we knew who was his mother, then that would help us to really understand the royal family, what's happening at this time. But if he was, if she was his mother, he probably would have taken more care of her burial, right? Yes, possibly. But we don't know that he didn't. Yeah, yeah. He didn't tell us what he did. We, we know because we find the archaeological traces that he took the bodies away from Amarna. We find in one tomb in Thebes called KV55, we find bits of Amarna royal burials. So we know that he mm-hmm. processed them. Mm-hmm. But the successful ones that he allocated somewhere else, we wouldn't know. Or if she died in the harem and was buried in the harem graveyard mm-hmm. cemetery, we wouldn't know about that. That might be what happened to old queens, ex-queens. Well, it's uh, interesting that when you're queen, you're in the spotlight and everything, you have so much power. And then as soon as the king dies, you lose a lot of that, depending if you're the daughter of a king. Because, as you say, it's the number of kings you're related to that designates how much power you have. Yeah. And also being a mother of a king is good, too. So that is that gives you power as well. It's a different kind of power, I think. But there are even fewer people who go on, fewer women go on to be the mother of a king. Ideally, you would want to be the daughter of a king, the sister of a king, the wife of a king and the mother of a king. That would be great. And you would you would stack up all those titles. You would always use all those titles. Nefertiti doesn't use the title daughter of a king, which tells yeah. us that she is not. But actually being the because some queens, some people, some women, become the mother of a king without having been the, the, the consort of a king. So if a, if, a, if a king has come from the harem queen, she, is, she has the title mother of the king, but she doesn't mm-hmm. have the, the earlier titles. So it's possible to do that. So Nefertiti, if she was the mother of Tutankhamun, could have claimed to be the wife of a king and the mother of a king. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, that would have given her extra power because also kings are quite closely linked to their mothers. And all their female relations. This is why in the art we tend to see kings with their female relations. These women seem have almost a protective power that they can help the king, that they will always be part of his family in a way that sons and brothers are their own family. They set up their own family. They move away from their birth family, whereas the women somehow in the royal family are very close to the king, which I think is interesting because it, it recognises that women are protective of the men not the other way around, <laughs> we tend to expect. <laughs> that is a really interesting way to put it. You mentioned that you have a new book. Cause yeah, I it's just come out. Just Well, it came out about a year ago, actually, but it's just been published in German as well. This ah, okay. Nefertiti's Face. Yes, which focuses on the bust of Nefertiti, because I became very interested in why we 
like to look at the bust and, and the stories that we devise when we've looked at the bust we try to interpret Nefertiti not on the basis of the archaeological evidence but on the basis of what we think when we see the bust if that makes sense we so can put whatever of, we want onto the bust yes exactly and people do people see different <laughs> things and enjoy Nefertiti in different ways and um, it's one thing about the bust is that it's very attractive to almost everybody who looks at it doesn't matter how old you are or what ethnic heritage you have or or what cultural background you have everybody seems or whether you're a man or a woman everyone seems to think the bust is very attractive and interprets them in very very different ways and in your book did you spend a lot of time in berlin when you were writing it well i went to look at the bust before i wrote it and then i came back home and wrote it um <laughs> without looking at it so yes yes and I've seen it in different different locations in Berlin as well over the years because I'm quite old now. So. Oh, that's really cool. <laughs> I'm going to have to read that book next. It's funny because I had seen the bust before, but until I was talking to you, I hadn't really understood its significance, actually. I knew it was important, but it was really interesting to see that that was, you know, the bust that, sailed a thousand ships <laughs> yes yeah and it is interesting because when i first saw it in west berlin um many many years ago not many people were interested in going to see it you could you could go right up to it but now if you go to see it in the museum <laughs> it, it's surrounded by people it's it's become very famous in its own right far more i'm not saying more famous than nefertiti but it it is famous and nefertiti is famous and i think nefertiti is famous because of the bust I think if we didn't have that bust, we would maybe look less at Nefertiti and look more at all the royal women of this mm -hmm. time. We would look at her mother-in-law, T, and her daughters as well. But because we have the bust, we focus very much on Nefertiti. Do you find that your students in your Egyptology courses, because you teach quite a, you teach different programs. Yeah. Do you find that they are most fascinated by Nefertiti or who are they most interested in usually? Nefertiti has, there's a lot of fascination of Nefertiti in the Mana period. I think that's one of the things that attracts people to ancient Egypt, to study of ancient Egypt. But if we're looking at personalities, also Ramesses, the second mm -hmm. Ramesses the Great, people are interested in Tutankhamun, people are interested in Cleopatra, but people do like to relate to a person, I think. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm also interested in studying prehistoric pots, but it's, it's less easy to talk about prehistoric pottery. <laughs> you know, it doesn't hook people in in quite the same way, I think. Well, probably not as many people. No. No. <laughs> uh, I'm actually thinking about applying for one of your courses. I started oh. the application. So. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> yeah, I, I told my boyfriend and he's like, oh, but you're so busy. I was like, yeah, but it's so cool. It's amazing that you offer, I think you offer a remote master's. Yes. Is there a remote bachelor as well? Not yet. There's two two parts that almost make a bachelor's, but not quite. <laughs> um, we're working towards having a remote bachelor's, but not, not at the moment. It's so cool. Yeah, I think that it's amazing that you're offering that to people. A lot of people want to study ancient Egypt, but they can't because of their circumstances. Um, mm -hmm. They're mm -hmm. isolated and they can't travel um, because of work commitments or health issues or caring responsibilities and so on. And it seems such a shame that these people couldn't access 
this sort of this sort of education so it's ideal particularly because a lot of museums have information online there's a lot of libraries now online so it's really possible to do good quality research online as you know i mean you, you're you're reaching out to a lot of people too um and i think it's a really fantastic thing that we're able to do this so we have students all over the world we have students in america and australia and and sort of everywhere in between the two really it, it's really good for us and it it brings to our discussions, we have such a wealth of experience of people from different mm -hmm. backgrounds. We have people from Egypt, which is fantastic. All this sort of mixes together and, and you know, we get a really good good discussion, I think. So I think in many ways, it's better than traditional universities where just people who live in the country go there. Mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. But that, I mean, I'm biased because I love online learning. <laughs> <laughs> like you said, many people, they work full time, they have children. They might not be 18 where they have, you know, the time and possibility to go live somewhere else. They just might have other things tying them to one place. And exactly. it might be one of their dreams. Like for me, it's been a been a dream for a long time. A lot of students say that, that they did. They, it was their dream, but their parents persuaded them to do something more sensible and to earn money. But now that they're getting slightly older, they've got time and the resources to, to follow their dream and they really enjoy it with no pressure you know that it, it's they're not looking for a career necessarily but they, they're looking to explore the past and learn a lot do you have any projects coming up you can talk about joyce i'm finishing off working on the masters because we're working on it one year at a time it's a two-year master so we're doing that and recording a lot of lectures and i'm writing a book with a colleague about how we teach online but that's quite a dull academic book cool. <laughs> it's to help other online teachers um, but I'm really hoping to write a book on Egyptian women, a sort of history of Egyptian mm -hmm. women told mm -hmm. from a woman's point of view rather than a male-based history. So, yeah, that probably will be my next project. Oh, that's awesome. One thing they say about history is that history remembers the victors or the, the victors write history. And very often it was men in control. So men wrote a lot of the history. Yes, yes. And that's particularly true in Egypt because all the tombs are built by men and they, they record the men's stories and the women are just in there as part of the part of the, the man's marriage. But if we look closely, we can find women as well. And my idea would be to track individual women throughout Egyptian history, looking at their lives and how they developed and what they did. I think it'd be really interesting. Yeah, I think that's so cool to think about. I mean, at this point, it's, you know, thousands of years ago and people were not so different in some ways. They did no. all same mundane things that we do okay they didn't have you know their phone to click click with but they really were not so different from us I think no, we're all people at the end of the day mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well I think those are all of my questions Joyce thank it's you that was really interesting talking to you I mean you're so amazing because you're able to express a lot of information very clearly so it's possible to get the message of all of it. Oh, thank you. We're now including in our courses, not just lectures, but we're doing, they're like podcasts, but we do, they're within the course, they do, they're not broadcast outside the course. But we do podcasts as well for our students because they really love the, the podcast. Um, they find it easier in some ways than looking at a lecture just to listen. And it's also great, I was flying yesterday on the airplane. I just saved some podcasts on Spotify, just listened to them. It's it's amazing. You're cleaning, you're cooking, like. Mm. Yes, I, I think it works well. 
Well, thank you for being my guest today, Joyce. Your book is incredible, and anybody who wants to understand more about Nefertiti should read at least one of the two, but actually probably both of the two about <laughs> Nefertiti, because you just get so much of a more in-depth understanding of, you know, who was this woman? Why was she so important? And how was she displayed, like, as this, you know, Venus fertile mother goddess? And she was, you know, portrayed as being semi-divine. And it's so fascinating from our perspective to see that she had that role and that was really what people believed and what she believed. It's it's an, an amazing encapsulation, your book, of of a glimpse into that world. Oh, thank you. Well, she's a fascinating character to write about, so I was really lucky to be able to write about her. Oh, well, I was lucky to have you as a guest today. <laughs> I'm a fan of yours, so I, I'm really happy that you were able to make time for me because you're so busy, so. <laughs> Disorganized. <laughs> Creative. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then thank you for your time, Joyce, and have a, have a nice rest of your day. <laughs> thank you very much. Bye. Okay. Bye. If you want to contact Joyce or just learn more about her, you can visit her website, joycetilsdeli.co.uk, spelled out J-O-Y-C-E-T-Y-L-D-E-S-L-E-Y dot co dot U-K. And you can also enroll in her online Egyptology courses at the University of Manchester. I'm linking directly to them in the show notes at beautyiseternal.com, as well as to her two books about Queen Nefertiti, in case your interest is piqued and you want to read more. <laughs>